My name is Thomas Malchow. I've been in the fitness industry for over 20 years. I've worked with hundreds of Olympic and professional athletes. I can help you become better at golf. What's up, guys? This is Thomas Malchow, and you are listening to the Train Fully podcast, the show dedicated to enhancing your golf performance. Now, if you find our podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you haven't done so already, head over to trainfully.com and join my inner circle. By joining my inner circle, I become your rehab specialist and performance coach, but at a fraction of what it costs to work with me one-on-one. For $14 a month, you get full access to all my golf-specific rehab and performance programs, live weekly workouts, Q&As, as well as full access to me. So you get full access to me whenever you need it, right? So if you're having issues with your hip, your low back is bothering you. If you just don't know why you're not able to get into the positions that you want to, you can send me a message. We'll do an assessment and we'll figure it out. So head over to trainfully.com and join my inner circle today. We have Dr. Dustin Grooms joining us today. Dustin is an athletic trainer and a professor of clinical neuroscience and physical therapy at Ohio University. He studies the neuroscience of human sensory motor control. And his lab does a lot of really interesting research, including how the brain changes after a musculoskeletal injury. So just think about that for a moment, how the brain changes after a musculoskeletal injury, how sensory motor control changes after a concussion, and how we can evaluate the brain to assess neuromuscular performance. If you're a coach, If you're a clinician or you're just a performance nerd, not just for golf, but for all sports, this episode is going to blow your mind. Now, there is a ton of information here. In fact, you may want to listen to it two or three times to make sure that you get all of the information and the information is very technical, right? We're diving into neuroscience here. Dustin is going to break down how the brain regulates sensory information to produce movement, how all of that changes after an injury, and what we can do to train the brain to reduce injury risk and enhance performance. But before we get into all of that, I am going to give you just a little bit of information first, because I think you'll get more out of the episode if I give you this information beforehand. As I said, this is a very, very technical episode. So I think we can all appreciate how important balance and stability are for golf. But how do we maintain balance and stability? Right? Do you think about it? Do you focus on it? Right? When you swing a golf club and you're rotating, you're moving your body weight side to side, do you think about trying to maintain stability? Well, the golf swing is pretty complex. What if we simplify things and use walking as an example? Right? When you walk down the sidewalk, do you think about maintaining your balance? Well, some people might have to, right? Like if you have a neurological issue or an injury, then yeah, you'll have to think about balance a little bit, right? Or you might have to if you're walking on a slippery sidewalk, right? But for most of the people, most of the time, when we walk, we don't have to think about maintaining our balance. It's just kind of automatic. Right. So if we don't have to think about it, how is it achieved? 
Well, balance and stability are achieved through complex interactions between the muscles, the peripheral nervous system, and the central nervous system. The muscles provide active and passive restraints. The peripheral nervous system provides reflexive actions. And the central nervous system provides anticipatory feed-forward control. And we refer to all of that as sensory motor control. And this is what Dustin studies. Sensory motor control, even for the easiest tasks, is a plastic process that undergoes constant review, feedback, and modification based on the integration of sensory information, motor commands, and resultant movements. Optimum sensory motor control is designed to prepare, maintain, anticipate, and restore stability of the entire human body, which we refer to as postural control, as well as each segment of the body, which we refer to as dynamic joint stability. So balance is a component of all of our movements, right? It doesn't matter if the movement is dominated by strength, speed, skill, or flexibility, balance is a component of it. For example, the golf swing is a highly complex movement pattern that requires losing, regaining, and maintaining balance while rotating and shifting your body weight side to side and all within about one second. The better your sensory motor control is, the better your golf swing will be. And we'll talk about how to enhance sensory motor control here in a moment. But the point I'm trying to make is when we have optimum sensory motor control, a lot of the processes involved with it are automatic. We don't have to think about it, right? And the better the athlete, the more automatic those processes are. But here's the amazing thing. All of that changes after an injury. Thanks to Dustin's research, we now know that after an injury, sensory motor control becomes less automatic. And that's because after an injury, the way the brain regulates sensory information to produce movement changes. And these changes make us more prone to re-injury and they probably also reduce our athleticism as well, right? So think about your golf swing again and think about it, how we want it to be automatic. And now think about all of the injuries you've had over the years, say to your low back, your shoulder, your knee, maybe even your neck, right? Well, it's possible that those previous injuries have changed the way your brain manifests your golf swing, right? So just think about that for a moment. Think about how extraordinary that is, right? So then how do we restore, optimize, and enhance sensory motor control? Well, Dustin's going to get into all that here in this episode. Now, as I said, Dustin's research is just extraordinary. You may have a lot of questions after listening to this episode. Feel free to reach out to him directly. Again, he's a professor at Ohio University. You can also give him a follow on uh, Twitter. His handle is at Dusty underscore grooms. Now, you can also reach out to me as well. I have a zip file with a bunch of his research papers in it. If you'd like to dive deeper into the research, feel free to reach out to me and I'll send that along to you. Enjoy the episode. And as I said, reach out to either myself or Dustin if you have any questions. All right. 
right. So joining us today, I'm just so excited. We have Dr. Dustin Grooms joining us, a professor of clinical neuroscience and physical therapy at Ohio University. Dustin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Look forward to the conversation. So before we get started here, why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners and tell them why you got into neuroscience? Sure. I mean, that's a, a great jumping off point because it's kind of bizarre to have someone who studies orthopedics, uh, the musculoskeletal system, be a neuroscientist. But I started out as an athletic trainer, so I expected to be a clinician for most of my life. I never really planned to do a PhD or do research that I do today. And I was treating patients. I was working at a division three college with uh, wrestling, soccer, track and field. And I come out of my master's degree thinking, you know, no one's going to get hurt again on my watch. Like I'm going to do the best therapy. You know, I was really well trained. I was really confident. You know, you come out of school thinking, you know, all of our medical interventions are spectacular and everyone's going to do great. And because uh, the kind of the, how the textbooks, I think, teach you you know, this test will tell you if they have this injury and then you do this exercise and you'll recover all of their functional. And you kind of go in, think it's going to be great. And so, um, I mean, I'll never forget. I had a couple of players um, blow out their ACL soccer players. And I mean, if you look at the data, like every other team's going to have one, especially female. So there's just not a lot of avoiding it. And I worked with them. And what's unique about the college setting for athletic training is, um, you're there every day for practice, you know, you're doing coverage for the events. And so I go out in the field and I do, I see him get hurt. I do the evaluation. I take him to see the surgeon and then he has, it's confirmed. And then, so I take him to his operation. I pick him up. I do his post-op appointments. I see him twice a day, every day for nine months. And then I do the return to play tests. And uh, a couple of weeks later, he goes to cut and he blows out his other side. And uh, I just couldn't handle that. I mean, I didn't do very well after that because you feel like you failed them. And I think that's why, why you do what you do. You're trying to train clinicians and train patients, try to help people. Because, I mean, this idea that if someone's like symmetric on their hop, like for ACL, it's just like they have good hop strength, means they can hop the same on both legs. They have the same strength. You think they should be ready to go. But clearly that just wasn't the case if they're still getting hurt. And so I couldn't really accept that as a outcome. And so I went, uh, I was like, well, maybe I can try to figure this out. And I started out in biomechanics, which is using motion capture or different tools to measure how the human body moves and understand the forces acting on it. And I kind of realized about a year into it that that's a, probably as far as we're going to get with this technology. It's taken us to understand what movements contribute to injury risk, maybe what we need to work on in terms of like, what are the impairments we need to fix? but it's not really telling us how to fix them. And then I switched over to neuroscience and I realized there's something going on in the neural generation of those mechanics that we're not fixing in our approach. And I've been on that journey for almost 15 years now. Yeah, and it's absolutely fascinating, your research. Um, as you know, I heard you speak uh, early this month at a presentation and what you said answered a lot of questions that I had about uh, some of the patients I had with ACL rehab. It answered a lot of questions that I had about other injuries and even injuries that I've had myself. Now, the topic here is fairly complex, and I know the listeners like this, but just to make sure everybody's on the same page before we dive into your research, can you explain what the postural control system is and how it works? Sure. So the postural control system, it's commonly defined, and there's actually been a push in some of the 
biomechanics literature to have two terms for it. So like postural stability is your ability to like to hold your limits of stability or to basically minimize your center of pressure or your excursion when you're like sitting on a force plate is a common way to measure it. And then postural control is your ability to maintain stability relative to perturbations or movement. So I started to see people be a little more precise in their terminology because a lot of times when people talk about postural control, what they really mean is postural stability, ability to hold like a single leg stance position um, and minimize that excursion versus control, which is more like the ability to keep your stance during gait and have minimal excursion side to side. And what's the reason why postural control is probably studied a lot is one falls risk is one of the biggest costs. The medical system, so the NIH puts a lot of money into trying to understand fall risk. What's interesting about falls is they're really uh, a coordination error or a postural control error where you expected your foot to be somewhere relative to the floor and you make a slight error and your postural control system didn't respond fast enough. So that would be a control when you take a step. And postural stability um, being just your ability to hold a static stance. And the other piece of it is it's a continuous, you have a continuous feedback loop from your sensory system. So we know that vision and vestibular and somatosensory, which is your like proprioceptive system or knowledge where your joints are in space without seeing them, they all interact to allow you to have stability or control. So um, I think for some of your listeners, you're probably more interested in control, which is the ability to maintain your stance during dynamic movements. What's kind of weird about postural stability is there, I remember maybe a decade ago, there's a big push where everyone thought that the neurocom would be really predictive. So if you don't know what the neurocom is, it's when you um, have to maintain postural stability. So you got to maintain very rigid stance, very upright. And then the, the, the board would move that you're on or the environment would move. And it was designed to assess your, the vestibular or the sensory or the visual system. And the vestibular system was, was challenged with the moving scene. So it's kind of like being on a ship that messes with your vestibular system was to reproduce that. And then you could assess vision with eyes open, eyes closed. And then your proprioceptive system was challenged with the moving plate. A lot of people use like the AirX pad or whatever to mess with your proprioceptive system. There's a big thought, well, that's gonna predict fall risk in aging. And they're like, if who people who are really stable, they're probably not gonna get hurt and fall. People who are unstable, they'll probably more like fall. People can't maintain a static stance. And then there are all these interventions to train postural stability to maintain static stance. But you could probably already start to think about the problem with that is your ability to go really rigid and hold a stance isn't really predictive of how you prevent a fall. To prevent a fall, you take another step, right? right? You don't suddenly lock everything down. And so that was a big failure of uh, like biomechanics when, well, not really biomechanics, the realm, that would be too general. But it was a big failure of our initial assumptions that the ability to do this task to stabilize yourself would suddenly translate to prevent falls and better in, in other conditions. And so I think that's where some of this origin of postural stability versus control comes from. I know it was a long-winded answer, but I just think that's like a fascinating science uh -huh. antidote that we went on this 10-year detour training this like stability system and it turned out not to matter as much. Yeah. Well, then th let's get into your research now because this is absolutely yeah. fascinating to me. What happens to the brain after a musculoskeletal injury and what happens, I guess, to the whole postural control system? Certainly. And postural control system is a great representation too of, of what's going on in the brain because it's a very nice controlled way to what we would call to do a behavioral test. So we, a lot of what our lab tries to do is we try to do what's called brain behavior modeling, where we try to get an idea of how the brain is changing and our limited tools to do neural recordings in a living human. So like I can't 
you know, slice open your head and put electro wires in and have you do a postural control task. And you just have to measure things that are secondary. So I could use EEG, electroencephalography, or a functional spectroscopy, or these other tools, and I can get superficial cortex activity of you standing in postural control conditions. But a lot of times for the legs and the lower extremity, we're really interested in subcortical or especially cerebellar control. And you can't really get that with the tools that allow us to assess neural activity during postural control. And so what we'll commonly do is we'll collect data in our biomechanics lab for how are you functioning to run, cut, maintain balance. And then we'll put you in a brain scanner and we'll try to get your whole brain activation pattern to control whatever limb we're interested in. And so some of the things we see after injury that starts to shift is right now we're in the middle of this longitudinal study. So our first studies were what we call cross-sectional, where I would just get people that were a certain time point after their injury. And the first studies, they were about six months or greater from their ACL injury, but they're also a few years out. And I just get them at one point in time. And I'm like, this is how your brain is different at this time relative to healthy people. We have no idea when all that started to happen though in the course of rehab. And so we have this longitudinal study now, we're getting people early after their injury and then we're following them until return to sport. And what we see initially after the injury, we have this loss per perception. So it's where your joints are in space, you close your eyes, you touch your fingertips together. You can do that because you have proprioceptive senses. So your skin gives you feedback, your ligaments. A lot of it's the Golgi tendon organs in your muscles give you a lot of um, feedback on where your joints are in space. And so the ACL, and a lot of ligaments have this. So we see this starting to reproduce in shoulder ligaments and then some ligaments in the ankle, where if you stimulate distally to the where the ligament or the joint is, the sensory cortex has a representation or a certain activation pattern that will fire if I stimulate electrically like distal to that, to that joint. So if I stimulate the tibial nerve distal to the knee in a healthy person, I'll see a certain activation pattern on the sensory cortex because that represents the knee in the sensory cortex. If you blow out your knee, blow out your ligament, you have shoulder instability, that representation, sometimes it's messed up and sometimes there are areas of it that are missing. Hmm. And those areas are where your ligaments used to give you that stability or give you that information. They're gone. Right. So we call this an internal representation. So there's some debate, there's some debate on the degree you have internal representation, but you can think of it as your homunculus. When people think of the homunculus, it's just like, it's also called the little man in the brain where you're sensory and motor strips are organized by regions of the body. And so we can look at those regions that represent each body area. And we see that the representation of that region is fundamentally altered in subtle ways. And this induces a cascade of different events. So you have the immediate loss of proprioception, but your motor cortex is still trying to output to the same function. So you hurt your shoulder, I'm still trying to use it in daily activities. I'm still trying to walk if I hurt my knee, still trying to play hockey if I've blown out my ankle, right? You're still trying to do the same activities you want to do because the injury is not so severe that it's removed your ability to do the task. So we see after a knee injury, we see the quadriceps immediately shut down because the sensory cortex goes, there's something wrong going on with this joint. I need to shut down the muscles that load that joint. And then we see an immediate shift to use your soleus and use your hip. And then this doesn't just automatically recover when you recover quad strength, which is what's crazy. Now you would think if I gave the quad its strength back, your brain would just go, I'll use my quad again. Nope, it doesn't do that. It still uses your hip and your soleus to try to even do normal gait and walking. It yeah. will not just magically come back. Right. And um, so that's like the beginning of the cascade. 
and over time, so every time you go to take a step and you have this missing sense information, you are now training your nervous system to use a new activation pattern in the brain every step and you reinforce that. And the two paths we see it go is one is this visual shift. And so you start to activate what are called cross-modal brain regions, which they try to integrate where that you think you are in space, visual, spatially, or memory-wise and proprioceptive-wise. And just stop me if, if you have oh, questions. No. I got questions that okay. I want, I'm going to ask you afterwards. Keep going with it. Okay. So this cross-modal thing, if you think of it as you have your occipital cortex and parietal cortex. And so normally, information, if only visual information come in, you get a lot of occipital cortex. And if only proprioceptive comes in, you get like sensory cortex, S1. But you have this gradient between the two. This is how you're able to like see something and then locate it, pick it up, and you have like confirmation of where it is in space. This is responsible for your entire like visual spatial navigation abilities. Because this is it's that link between seeing where something is and feeling where it is and going to it. And so we just take this for granted, but the neural machinery to do this is ridiculously complicated and it's still not 100% understood. But you basically have this gradient where like S1, only sensory proprioception information. Occipital, early visual cortex, only visual information. But as you come together, you see this gradient of processing between the two. And so like lingual gyrus, angular gyrus, which abuts against the visual cortex, it will activate with vision, but it'll also activate with concurrent proprioceptive cues. And then when you hit superior parietal cortex and precuneus, it activates kind of evenly to both. Because this is where you're trying to match where I think I am in space with where I am proprioceptively in space. A good example of it is uh, if you're like walking in the dark and you think there's another step going down the steps, but there's not, and you have that like big jolt, yeah. a lot of that error correction is coming from this cross-modal pathway. So this pathway goes, holy crap, where I thought my foot was in space, I thought I had another step, wasn't there. And then you have to make an immediate correction. And so, so that's after yeah. I have a quick injury. So then after make, make sure people are following along here. So prior to injury, we get information going into the brain from the mechanoreceptors in the ligaments. We get information going to the brain from the visual system. And then we get information going to the brain from the vestibular system or the inner ear. And the brain takes all of that information and then uses it to produce movement, whether that's a sensory correction or whether that's just a regular motor pattern that's stored in the brain. Are you saying then that after injury, because say we injure the joint and we get less proprioception from the mechanoreceptors, that then the motor engram or the motor program is no longer stored in that same area of the brain. It's now stored in another area that requires more attention. So that's actually, that's a really good clarification. So you're What's interesting about motor programs and the motor engram idea is that idea has been refined a lot as we gain more knowledge of how memories are stored. And so what we see is like when you go to generate movement, it's really, it's, it's really more, you know how you get memories and the, the Schmitt's like um, memory trace, or he called it a, a schema, Schmitt's schema is probably the best, where like you have a memory of yesterday, but it's not 100% crystal clear. It's a little fuzzy, but you can kind of piece it all together. Motor memories are the exact same way. Oh, and so when you go to do it, when you go to generate your motor plan, 
um, it's just like any other memory. The more exposure you have to it, the clearer it is. But you pull information from your whole cortex because the premotor cortex, before it sends the to the to M1, expects a certain level of either attention, visual information, sensory information, all the stuff you just talked about. You can think of the premotor says, I need X level of afferent input. And actually, afferent input is probably not even right. Afferent is part of it. I need X level of excitatory postsynaptic potential. So if you if we reduce it down, let's make it just one neuron, even though just for simplicity, say I have one neuron in M1 that'll activate and that'll make me do whatever I want to do, take a step. And then I have a neuron in the premotor cortex that's going to synapse and tell the M1 to send the impulse down, right? Now remember, this is actually thousand neurons and the computational scale is, is, is crazy complex, but that one premotor neuron, it's going to, it needs a certain amount of excitatory potentials to say execute to go. Some of that comes from afferent stimuli because it'll have some connections to the sensory cortex and what's coming in. It'll have connections some to visual, but mostly it's from the frontal and it'll have some subcortical structures. And so it needs a certain level of input to it. That could come from afferent feedback. So for instance, if I get a big stretch on one of my joints and you create that big reflex, that'll send a big impulse up. You get a bunch of afferent traffic in, that could up the excitatory potential and allow you to make a motor correction. Or it could be the frontal cortex, which is pushing information in your direct attention and also increases excitability. So it could either be coming from, say, the joint where you're the joint's expecting to be in one place and it goes maybe beyond because there's an extra step there. So an extra stretch. And then that's enough um, afferent, which is sensory information. So afferent yeah. is sensory information from the receptor going to the brain saying, we stretch too far that reaches a certain threshold above which causes an excitatory efferent response, which would be a, a motor response or a, a muscular response. Yeah, that's a good way to think about okay. it. Okay, very cool. And, and so if you're expecting a certain level of input to the premotor cortex and the, you've lost some of that afferent traffic coming up, but you still need a certain amount to execute the movement to go, then you can make up for it in one of several ways. One could be this visual feedback. And we just published a paper that shows those this shift towards these cross-modal visual processing regions. They're highly connected to frontal cortex regions, which is responsible for your attention, which makes sense because vision, is, like the parietal frontal connectivity in your brain is massive because we're mostly trying to direct our conscious attention, which is mostly the frontal cortex, to stuff we're looking at. So that's mm. why you have a massive amount of connectivity there. Right. And so we think that shift in visual processing regions and these more cross-modal regions is related or secondarily related to that attentional shifts. And what we're trying to figure out now is uh, how much of that is due to the injury. Cause it makes sense. Injury, loss, proprioception. Mm -hmm. I have to maintain stability. We have find vestibular is pretty static. And so I know we've mentioned that a few times we find injury doesn't really do eight a lot. Their aging tends to do some stuff to vestibular, but we find that's pretty stable, um, mostly because the temporal cortex, which regulates, it doesn't have a lot of connectivity. It's like almost its own separate pathway, which is a whole interesting idea. But so injury doesn't affect. I'll just jump in real quick here because this is important. So yeah, yeah. what he, what he's saying is prior to injury, and correct me if I'm wrong here. No, please go. Prior to injury, we have a certain amount of information going in from the uh, proprioceptors, the mechanoreceptors from the joint. We have a certain amount going in from the 
from the vision and we have a certain amount going in from the vestibular. The vestibular stays constant. So then if the mechanoreceptors are damaged, then that means we have less uh, sensory information going in from the, from the proprioceptors, which then means we rely more on the visual system. So after injury, our movement requires more visual attention. Is that correct? That's one of the mechanisms we see, and we're starting to see people will compensate through a few different pathways. So our original studies, that was my thought. Well, and it makes sense in hindsight. You're like, well, I've lost this, so I need more visual attention. And what we found since then is the underlying sort of neural machinery is a little more nuanced. So that could be one of the compensation mechanisms. The other one we see is you might start to just rely on more like visual memory, which is not necessarily direct attention, but you kind of had like right now, like if I'm sitting at my desk, I can't actually see my legs, but I could imagine where they are pretty easily. And so you have, not only do you have an internal representation of your proprioceptive environment, you have one of your visual environment. And so you could be using more of this, there's a whole term called implicit motor attention, which is sort of, um, you could almost think of it like, uh, you ever hear someone who has like court sense or field sense? Mm, where yeah. they don't see everyone, but they kind of have a general idea and they almost can't describe it to you. Yeah. And so a lot of that, this sort of implicit attention, we find to be what's the shift as well. So it might not even be she, the direct, they're not like looking at their knee, that's part of it, but it could be they're just using some of these resources they would use for situational awareness now to control their knee a little more. So as we've gathered more data, we find that this neural manifestation um, is a little more nuanced and it, and it kind of depends on the individual responses more. So for, and this is getting a little bit off topic, but as I right. said, before we started this conversation yeah, yeah. off the air, I am just so fascinated by your research. And I have so many questions, not just with golf, but with all sports. So when you were talking about that kind of awareness, certain athletes or certain people have an awareness or visual memory of where things are, it makes me think of say like a Tom Brady or Wayne Gretzky what they used to say about Wayne Gretzky, it was almost like he was watching the ice from above where he knew where everybody was. Would that, could that be explained by like a higher brain connectivity or, or is that kind of like what you're getting at with some of that? What separate, I guess I, I guess what I want to know is what makes Tom Brady and Wayne Gretzky and Michael Jordan so much better at everybody else than, than everybody else uh, at sports? Man, that's a way cooler question. So that's a lot harder to test. There is some interesting data in, in sports where they've done like saccades, which basically like your eyes, you know, make movements. So they just call them eye saccades. And you do like three or so a second, depends on how like jacked up you are, or how relaxed you are. They do find like experienced people tend to have very fluid and very like they're very attending to what matters versus inexperienced players like looking all over the place right and some of the best studies on that is done in driving studies where like people who are experienced drivers they tend to look at the information that's available but inexperienced are looking at every sign everything going on and they have trouble reconstructing the environment and so i think it's a combination of one because you only make so many shifts with your attention at a time your direct attention so you think of it as two buckets you have overt attention what i'm looking at where my saccade is but then there's um, subversive attention or implicit attention, where it's not what you're attending to, but what you're planning, seeing, or feeling or experience around you. And I don't know if we have a really good sense for exactly how that works. There's some interesting 
stuff where people are trying to use virtual reality to like make things appear in your attention that you can't actually see. And then they're doing eye tracking. So VR gives you a chance to experimentally test some of this in a controlled way. Like a big problem with trying to test this phenomenon before was sport was way too variable. So every single second of the game, you can't reproduce it, right? In a, in a lab, it's very difficult, but right. VR lets you do it. And so I think we'll have some answers there in the future because there's people trying to probe this idea, but man, you're right. There is something and, and it's got to be trainable too, which is, well, I don't think we figured out how. That's what I wanted to ask you. Cause there's a, I mean, I don't know if you know who Connor McDavid is, but he's, um, he's the best hockey player in the world right now. And hockey is such a dynamic sport and there's so much going on. It's happening at such a fast pace. And they had a highlight where he was surrounded by four defenders and he was stick handling through their feet under their stick. His feet are doing crossovers. His hands are doing the stick handling. And his head is looking for open teammates. And the first thing I thought of is like, that guy's brain has got to be so powerful to be able to do all of that all at once at such a high speed and make good decisions. Would that be, maybe, maybe explain what brain connectivity is and would that be a representation of high connectivity? Yeah. So for, for the brain connectivity, before we jump there, there was a cool study on a, it was a famous soccer player, Neymar, N-E-Y-M-E-R. Yeah, Neymar, yeah. Neymar. Yeah. And they put him in a, in a scanner. They were trying to look at his representations for like his feet and his legs and stuff. And what's interesting, so I'll get to the connectivity in a second, but um, what I think plays into the hockey player's idea, his, fun, his ability to do those fundamental tasks requires so little neural activity. So I'm going to talk about two concepts neural activity, which is you take a brain region, or um, we talk about them in fMRI as voxels, which are little cubic things, which we break the data into, but let's take it just a, a region. So like the motor cortex, how much neural activity, which is a good surrogate for two things, either the volume of neurons that have to fire or the um, rate coding or the repetition of the neurons. There's really only two ways you can increase brain activity of a, of a volume of a region. I can activate more neurons in the region, or those neurons that are activating can fire faster. Mm -hmm. It's really, really only it. Now in fMRI, we have to deal with like metabolism and, and other stuff, but for this conversation, you can think of it like that. And so the level of neural activity is one aspect. And in like in Neymar's example, he had very little neural activity to like move his feet. It was almost non-existent. So we would call it, yeah, that's your surrogate for aut automaticity or aut automatic motor control. And that's what we would also call neural efficiency. Now, the activation level is just the first step, the first part of neural efficiency, this idea of less neural activity in some way to do a task. And what we see with the motor cortex, especially, is it scales pretty well with relative complexity. So um, you take, the, and a lot of this was actually done in intelligence work. So I'll start with that example. So if you're a mathematical genius, we used to think you know, before brain imaging that, oh, you must use more of your brain, right? You're a very smart person, blah, blah. We actually find they're just more efficient with their brain. For them to do simple math, two plus two, required very little frontal cortex activity. And that gives them like the bandwidth to have more complex mathematical thought. Think of it like that. Motor cortex, very similar. You take someone who's never done any physical activity, you put them in the scanner to just like move their leg. That could require like half, just, it's, I'm just making this up like half of their capacity to increase in one. 
because you can only increase motor cortex activity so far before motor errors happen or you fail at the task. You can't generate more force or the coordination's too much. And so as complexity goes up for you, based on your training history and your experience, that's how M1 will go up. So Neymar starting at very low to just move his ankle foot because he can do insane. He has so much dexterity, right? So your hockey player, to do those basic skills, he probably requires very little M1 activity because that frees up his attentional resources to look elsewhere. He doesn't have to dedicate much neural capacity to doing the basic stuff. And then the second part of the neural efficiency idea that was the connectivity piece, which is what you're getting at. Yeah. So normally what we see is, well, first I'll tell you what connectivity is. We usually break it up into two bins. You have functional connectivity, which is essentially how two neurons and or two brain regions, we'll stick with that, two brain regions are firing together or not together. And we can do this during a task or we can do it in a resting state where you're just relaxing. We're looking at the baseline connectivity. And so a good example is if I took your hand area of your sensory cortex, hand area of your motor cortex, and I looked at what is the connectivity of these two regions, subregions, when you're just lying in the scanner. And it'll be like 0 0.7, 0 0.8 on a zero to one scale. One is like they're moving together perfectly, you know, when one's up, one's down in neural activity. And then zero means they're like totally opposite, not even moving together. And so two regions that communicate a lot together, they tend to activate and seek in sequence together. And the regions that don't activate together, they tend to not activate sequence so like your um like some of your very early stage hearing areas like a1 and v1 they have no relationship to each other they won't have very functionally connected but like these cross modal regions they'll tend to have be more connected to the visual and sensory regions and stuff like that so stuff that fires together tends to be connected right and then you have structural connectivity which we use diffusion tensor imaging for which maps the white matter tracks in the brain it looks at the level of their um, structural connection. So a lot of that comes from Charles Hebby and Hebby and plasticity and neurons that fire together, wire together. So the structural connectivity just gives you an idea of have you made some sort of anatomical or macroscopic change to the structure to support this neural firing. And so we see it in injuries, we see it degrade and the integrity of the white matter that connect your regions with training, we see the opposite, we see it go up. And so with efficiency, you want to have decreased activity and then supported by usually increased connectivity. Right. And so in your scenario, when the guy is having, when the player is able to execute all these basic motor skills, he's able to do that because he has low activity. So with M1, so he can handle a lot of motor challenge and he's able to use his sensory environment to respond to it. And then that frees up his attentional resources to direct it elsewhere. He doesn't have to dedicate him to the motor task. And then, so then that connectivity does it decrease after a musculoskeletal injury? So we see it mostly change. And so we'll see the connectivity will actually go up in ways that we don't want it to. Okay. And so ideally, like with training, you would see increased connectivity between like the sensory and cerebellar cortices. You see that some of what's called anticipatory training or timing-based training. And the reason why I think timing training is an interesting one that I think we'll see more in rehabilitation these a lot in neurologic populations is if you're trying to get someone to make better sensory judgments and correct for sensory errors, which is essentially what injury prevention is, then they have to get better at anticipate, anticipating events and making anticipatory corrections. Mm -hmm. And so people have used metronomes and various ways to make someone like do something in certain timing, and then they suddenly adjust the timing, make you make corrections. 
there's a lot of clever ways you can do this with visual or auditory cues. And if you train with that, you can increase sensory cerebellar connectivity, which is what you would want, because that allows the cerebellum to make these sort of automatic corrections to sensory challenges. We see after an injury, we see a shift and we see more connectivity to like cortical regions, to the frontal cortex, visual cortex. You start to rely a lot more on dedicated conscious attention to control the joint, as opposed to more cerebellar mediated connectivity, what you would want. And so it's more of a injury tends to do this cascade of a different connectivity as potentially a compensation. Yeah. And, and that's sort of, that, that's one of the fascinating things that came out of your research is one of the limitations possibly from a lot of the rehab protocols that we, that we implement is that like we're having the person focus so much on that injured area for so long that they almost become reliant on that attention. Right. And so maybe see if I can explain this correctly, but like say for ACL rehab, the first thing we want to do, like you said, is we want to get that quadricep firing. So we have the person staring at their quad, they're staring at their knee and they're focused for months and months and months, usually like, you know, at least nine months on their knee, they can pass all the return to sport criteria because those tests aren't very dynamic, right? They don't require a lot of other attention. They can still pay full attention to their knee and pass those tests. So then we think, okay, fine. The, the person's ready to return to sport. Well, now we throw them into, say, a dynamic sport like what you study with soccer, and they can't focus so much on their knee anymore. They have all these other sensory inputs coming in in regards to where the players are, where the ball is, and they re-injured their knee because they were reliant upon that attention. Is that correct? I think. So we don't have data for that last part, but I think that's what's happening. So like what you said before, we talked about that motor program or engram, you started to generate knee control with this expected visual attention strategy, or at least an attention strategy. Even if you're not dedicating vision to it, you're at least attending to your knee, maybe even implicitly a lot. Because in therapy, we give all the cues are based around the injured joint. So even if you're not looking at it, you're thinking about it. And then suddenly you take that away. Now use your attentional resources or even your, like we talked about situational awareness, you've dedicated all of your awareness to your knee joint. And suddenly you're trying to navigate the court. You're trying to do everything you used to do, but we've trained you to do knee neuromuscular control with a, a completely, not completely, a very different neural control strategy. And suddenly sport demands all of those resources you allowed them to use mm -hmm. to be engaged and they're not available to do both. And then we think that's when we have a failure. So. And I think that it applies to really every injury. I mean, when I look back at my therapy I did before I started this research journey, I mean, I'm almost upset with myself because in hindsight, you're like, this is obvious. Yeah. It, you don't even need all of my decade of work. Like you just think about the said principle, specific adaptation to oppose demands. Yeah. I've gotten you good, good at generating quad strength when you can focus all of your neural re in energy and vision, everything on it. And of course it fails and you go back to like, what, what would you think was going to happen? I just, I don't know. I, I just get upset when I think about it. Cause I feel like we should have figured this out by now. Well, it, it, when, when I heard you first speak, I was like, Oh my God, like, yeah, exactly. Like, how did we not catch this before? And then even with my own rehab, um, with my own injuries before I'm like, that would explain why I still have difficulties when I play dynamic sport, like hockey or, or, or basketball, because I never, trained for that extra step of being able to do all that stuff and, and make, I guess, the movements more reflexive. And for like, even for golf, like 
golfers perform best when they don't have a, a lot of swing thoughts. Like a golfer generally doesn't play well if they're like, okay, I got to turn my shoulder this way. I got to rotate my hips this way. I got to keep the spine angle there. When they have a ton of swing thoughts, they, their swing typically doesn't look very well. And so it got me thinking about how this would even apply to a sport like golf where they don't, golfers don't have to really assess a playing field with players coming at them and the ball moving or anything like that but they do want their movement to be reflexive and they need their postural control and or stability to, to be reflexive. Otherwise they're, they're not going to play well. One of the things that I heard you talk about before, and I wasn't sure if I heard this correctly. Is it true that after an injury, I'm not sure if it would be an MSK injury or certainly I guess a concussion would apply that it's almost like the brain ages. Yeah, I did talk about that. So another um, one of my collaborators in our College of Medicine, he's a, a, a world leader. He's probably, a, I don't know, top 10 scientists really in the field of um, neuromuscular control and physiology and ages. And Brian Clark, and he pioneered the term. Uh, so we used to have sarcopenia, which is frailty and loss of muscle size, so it's like mass. And he's done all this work showing, actually, it's not really muscle size or mass you lose at the age of support, it's muscle strength that's important. Because they did these interventions where people would gain mass, they would give them different drugs to gain mass or gain muscle size, but they didn't necessarily do any better. Like they didn't really get stronger or they didn't improve their daily living and the all-cause mortality didn't change. And he did a lot of work showing it's actually the nervous system that's aging and the neural drive to the muscle. It's not so much that the muscle, the muscle deteriorates certainly and that plays a role. But, and so he showed that it's actually the neural implications with aging that were very important. And then we were looking at some of his data and some of my data, and you see a similar shift where it's almost as if a musculoskeletal injury induces this acute aging um, for control of that joint. So whereas aging is a systemic problem, um, the joint injury is obviously a localized problem, but it was fascinating, the parallels between the two. So then after an MSK injury or after a concussion, we can train. I mean, we should get into this before we, we jump ahead. And I, I yeah, yeah. it's funny because for the listeners, before I started the conversation here with Dustin, I said, this is going to be, I'm going to be throwing a ton of questions at you because I'm just so excited about this. Um, maybe let's talk about uh, how we can train the brain after a musculoskeletal injury or after a concussion, whether that's different or the same to restore that neuromuscular control. Because just before we get into it here, I'll just reiterate that after an injury, an MSK injury, so an injury to a joint, the way your brain um, regulates information to produce movement changes, and you become more reliant on attention rather than having the movement reflexive, right? Is that correct? Yeah, that's so one then, of the pathways. So then because of that, we're at more risk for injury because our movements require more attention. And if we're playing sport, even golf, we don't want to be spending a lot of attention on our movement. So we need to make our movement more reflexive again. How can we do that? So that's like the holy grail of, of all of this. <laughs> like, uh, so if you, so the, a lot of our research right now is better trying to understand what these changes are, but we have done some clinical trial work to try to experiment with some things that we think might work. And there's other interventions that show some promise that have like related data. So the one thing I think about is you need to have restore that neural efficiency somehow. And 
injuries essentially make us not neurologically efficient to control our joints, mostly because we compensated with frontal attentional related control or some aspect of visual memory or processing or implicit awareness. So these sort of different neural resources you've engaged to allow you to still have movement and function of the injured joint. So there are a few things you could think about for how to fix this. One is just to think about what their patients have to do and try to simulate those conditions as much as you can. And so for golf, that's going to be more interesting. That's a very refined motor skill. And it's one thing that's always a challenge with um, a lot of like our injury prevention work, which might apply to golf somewhat, is we're trying to get them one aspect of generating that motor control strategy, you talked about like them to do it more reflexively or more automatic. And that's definitely something that's lost. And there's some interesting data for how you generate movements implicitly versus how you generate them explicitly. And so um, Rachel Seedler, I think she's at Michigan now, she's done really a bunch of cool papers on this. Um, I think it's S-E-I-D-L-E-R if you wanna check her out. but. Um, so she's done a lot of work on the neural quality of motor learning and motor control. And she did this really cool series of papers trying to better understand explicit versus implicit attention. And like explicit tends to activate a lot of the stuff we see after an injury, which really is starting to make me think. And as we collect more data, it's starting to look like our rehabilitation induces most of this stuff, right. um, which makes sense. So like you only have really two ways to really change the nervous system. One is you change afferent feedback coming in, you know, you lose a limb or you've lost a brain region, you've had a stroke or something, you've altered afferent input to all the other regions. Or the second way you change your behavior and that causes a, then a change in afferent feedback coming in and induces a cascade of changes. And they start to reinforce each other. So we what it looks like you have the afferent acute event and then your behavior changes and that changes the input in and causes a cascade where you start to go down this um, motor learning of using not the ideal activation strategy. You start to use, rely more on attention like we talked about. And so what Rachel is showing that um, explicit control, where you tell someone how you want them to move, tends to look like our injured people, actually. They start to activate a similar neural strategy, which um, probably not ideal for our rehabilitation. It's another reason why it's starting to look like our rehabs inducing this. But if you learn implicit skills, which is means you can't really describe how to do it. So the classic example is how do you ride a bike, right? People don't go, well, I sit on it with my glutes and if I'm starting to fall one way, I contract my glute max and I push down on my, like people can't tell you how to do it. Right? It's very difficult. Or even if you have kids, like ask a kid, like, how do you walk? And they'll just look at you like you're crazy. But then you go to like a stroke rehab clinic and they're like, you know, lift your toes up more, push off with your knee, contract your glutes more. Or any ACL rehabilitation program, they're always like, keep your knees over your toes, you know, bend your chest up. You're constantly telling how to move, but no one learns naturally to move explicitly. We always learn to move implicitly. And so one way to try to restore this is try to try to get them to move implicitly again. And in ACL prevention, this is always tough because the goal is to land with your knees over your toes. So the goal is the movement. And then before a lot of literature for explicit training has used knowledge of results where you just tell someone, you know, good movement, bad movement. Mm -hmm. um, in golf, at least you have, you know, they did it good. I guess if the rate drive goes far, or they sink the putt or something. But I, I bet people come with a lot of wacky strategies to, to still ha like have a good rep of a task. So you, maybe you can't rely on just um, good swing. Like, you know, it's good if it like went where you wanted it to go, I guess. How much yeah. can you guys rely on knowledge of results only to train the golf swing? Did you just have people hit until 
they they go where the ball they want the ball to go it's funny because you would think because they're all golf golfers that really don't uh i guess really are just concerned about knowledge of results like how well the shot the concern i guess with that like i think of like say one one of my clients right now um he is having an issue with the way that his hips rotate and he feels that his hips are rotating a little bit slow so his hands have to make up for it which is fine because he's a professional golfer he can compensate really well and and so it turns out that the shot's fine except when he doesn't compensate perfectly then he ends up hitting it like really far to the left and so even though i guess knowledge of results are just trying to make a good shot should be the focus. A lot of golfers are quite particular about their swing mechanics and they want it to look, look a certain way. And there's also just a lot of wear and tear. So we do want a certain type of swing to reduce some of the stress on, on, uh, on the joints. I have a question about how to program all this because we like after an injury, we do want to get certain muscles fired up again. Like you said, after an injury, usually like the prime mover for that joint gets shut down to reduce stress on that joint. And so we do have to spend attention trying to get that muscle firing again, but we don't want to become reliant on having to focus on it. Right. And so I've heard you talked about this before the sensory correction training, right? So how would we, if we were making a program, whether it's with an injured person or with a healthy athlete, how would we program all of this into either a workout or, or, even into like a training block. So what I would do is I would take whatever therapy you're going to do anyway. So you have all your things you're trying to address. You have your, I need to fix range of motion. I need to recover strength. I need to do whatever it is you're going to work on. And then the first thing I usually do is I go through each exercise and I think, well, where do I have to give them I have to get, let them use an intentional strategy and really focus on the movement. And so usually this is, I'm trying to push their difficulty in some way. So I'm trying to max you out on a squat. We're doing full focus and attention on the mechanics of the movement, you know, locking everything down, make sure you have good everything. Maybe if you're trying to learn a, a brand new uh, stroke or swing mechanic and you let them have their focus on it initially, but if they're just like doing a drill that they've done before, then I want to progress them in their motor learning feedback. So I think of it a few domains, which we can talk about. Like there's like three or four I've started to break it into when I have clinical patients or if I'm helping clinicians. And so first is the motor learning. So I think where can I start to push and progress their feedback? So normally we think of progression as usually intensity of the exercise, like how much weight or the complexity of the movement or whatever but I will usually layer on like three or four other categories. So one is modal learning. Do they need their direct attention and do they need explicit cues and being told exactly what they're doing? Do I need their whole focus on it? If I can progress that at all, like they might be the exact same exercise. Maybe I don't progress them based on load or intensity or complexity. Maybe I just progress them with my feedback and where I force their attention to be. And this is where I don't have a cookbook for everyone. This is where every patient's different. You have to use your clinical judgment like is the patient, does the patient need physical progression or do they need this motor learning progression? You have to make that decision. Right. And so, and then the next phase of that, I'll try to usually do what it's called in literature, an external focus, where I try to trick them to get the movement I want, but make their attention in the environment. 
And so a high speed movement like golf, like a golf swing is a little more challenging because it's hard to direct their attention somewhere. Like the easiest ones are like point your knees at a cone during a squat. Um, I've seen people put laser, like strap lasers on their thighs and on their pelvis on a belt and like try to keep their laser at a target to keep their hips stable during a movement. Um, I've also seen people have gotten more advanced biofeedback stuff lately to try to train gait and train that stuff that's faster where they put like an accelerometer on the shank during running and they'll be like, keep that bar, you know, low to, to signal like ground reaction forces. And so if you're trying to train someone like to move their hips faster, you could put a sensor on and then get the speed of it during the movement. Like you have to get that up and then they're just focused on that and they develop some way to do it. So it's a little less directed at the joints, directed at something else. Yeah. And then as they progress further, I try to give that knowledge of results are like truly implicit. And what we've done in our studies is we use an augmented reality device where um, they would see a rectangle and the rectangle will deform if they're not moving well. So this works okay for ACL injury stuff. Um, we haven't tried it for golf or baseball or anything yet. Um, the NIH doesn't, doesn't really fund sport performance as much, but they'll fund injury stuff. Right. Um, so we're trying to, and we just finished the first study. We just, we just finished study this past summer, the data collection for it where we train athletes instead of like, keep your knees over your toes, keep balance between knee flexion and both tasks, keep your head up. This box just deforms if they're moving in some incorrect way. And the hope is at the end, they don't tell you how they're moving. They just move perfectly because they're trying to keep the box straight. And so I think for golf or something that's very complicated movement, that could have a lot of applications. Um, right now, it's a challenging thing to pull off computationally, but I mean, with the Kinect camera getting faster and cheaper, and I see no reason this wouldn't be something you'd have available. And so that's like just motor, le <clears throat> motor learning is like the first thing. And do you have a question on that or do you want to go to the next, next category? Well, well, this got me thinking when you're talking about like, say, trying to keep a rectangle with the movement, would that be then, because right now we can agree that there's certainly some limitations in our return to sport criteria, because especially with the ACL, stuff that the, I mean, what is it like 30% of the athletes re-injure either that, that same. Yeah. You're going back line. to high level sport and you're a young at risk athlete. Yeah. So then how could we use those types of tests to determine whether or not the athlete is more now, maybe more reflexive and able to return to sport? Like how would, how would we decide that with like a sport like soccer? So what I usually do for return to play tests, that's actually like the next category of stuff I work on actually. So this is good uh, leeway into that. So first like motor learning stuff, can I progress my feedback where their attention is, what I'm telling them? Like I think of that as a progression. The next one is to determine the level of automaticity um, of a movement. One way to do that is to use what's called dual tasking. And so it's kind of a challenge. You could have them do like 10 reps of the task and see if they move with perfect mechanics but that's actually not ideal because it's hard to know if they're compensating with attention in some way. And if you don't have ability to track eyes or like the scan their brain, you got to figure out a way to do it. And so a good way is you just don't allow them to use the compensation. And so this is where cognitive dual tasking comes in. And so what I'll commonly do from my return to sport test, I'll be like, all right, do your run to cut maneuver, my agility T test, my hop test or whatever. And I do it under some sort of condition that requires them to use visual attention during the task. And so you could use sensors like um, A-Champs or Rocks or there's a ton of them, Fit Lights, all these other sensors that we use. We use them in the lab because they give us reaction time too. So we get an idea if you're slow. 
but I also, I'll just like stand at the top of the test and I'll be like, you have to multiply these numbers as you're doing the hop or whatever. Right. And what's great about it is they can't cheat because they have to stare at you. So, you know, if they miss a number, cause then they took their eyes off of you and they look down at the knee or the landing or whatever. So it controls their gaze and then it controls their working memory. And so then you can at least have an idea if the performance degrade isn't severe, then I know you're not relying on visual attention. And the only other resource you really have is like cerebellar control, or maybe like you said, more reflexive spinal generated um, regulation of joint stability. So if you have minimal degrade in performance, then you can have a reasonable assumption that they're not compensating and they achieve more of this automatic level. The other way to do it, so that's like dual tasking is one. The other way is called a transfer test where you would try to really load them up with a lot of contextual interference. So this could be, you start to add more perturbations to the test when they're not really prepared for it. Um, we use some virtual reality for this, like some that we've used to test for postural stability or after injury is to see, we'll train them and then we'll put them on a VR roller coaster and then make them maintain their postural stability. If we see it go to junk, then we know that they are, they're not, their visual system, this cross-modal training isn't really prepared. And then we'll add some more training for that. So you can do a transfer test, which is basically testing them under new conditions or constraints, or this dual tasking is another way. So then can we, so I'll just reiterate what he's saying yeah, there. Yeah. So um, what say with the ACL rehab, the one of the main risk factors for an ACL injury is like the knees caving in the say when they do like a a jump, especially from like, uh, say like a box jump down. Yeah. So, or a forward jump, say a single leg forward hop. That's one of the, the standard tests. So if they have a, if they could perform that test just without any extra attention, so that's fine. And that's kind of like the standard test. But then if we add a cognitive load on top of that, and they can still maintain good mechanics, then that might be an indication that their movement is, is more reflexive and they're probably um, able to return to sport as opposed to like, if you give them a cognitive load with that single leg hop test and an E case in the valgus, then they're probably not quite reflexive yet. And they're going to be at high risk for injury. Is that correct? Yeah. So I think of it exactly as you laid out. That was, that was perfect, Thomas. So I'll, I'll test them. And <laughs> I've read I'll a get... lot of your research. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. That makes, uh, I think you, you and my mom. So that looks pretty good. <laughs> Actually, she just looks at the pretty brain pictures. I don't know if she really, really reads it, but uh, she, uh, well, you never really know. Like, uh, this is one thing. This is why I love doing these like uh, podcasts and stuff like this is like, I really have this fear that all of the research is going to be like stuck in these pay access journals and it's not going to help people. Like, I, I feel like this, this is why I appreciate this opportunity because this is very important to get it out there. So, so thanks for doing this. So is there a way yeah. then for us to predict injury based on measuring brain connectivity? So that is a great question. Oh, but I had one more thing for the dual sorry. test part. So usually what I'll do is, sorry, I got, I, I sidetracked. This is my fault. Um, usually what I'll do is I'll test them and you look for usually certain, usually want symmetry between the two legs. And if you have pre-injury data or normative data, there's a lot of good normative data for what your hop should be for like pediatric males and females. But if I was like elite athletes, they're, they're tend to be harder to do. So it kind of isn't who you're working with. So at least symmetry. But then what we usually see is our ACL patients, the involved side, if it degrades more than about 5% for the dual task, then we know that they need to work on that. So they, maybe their muscles are ready, but then I'm like, oh, you need a little more 
dual task training or this neurocognitive training with your neuromuscular training before I'm going to let you go back to sport. And a good way to progress it, what I'll usually do is everything from like the basic quad set to normal exercises to squats, whatever. Usually I'll, what I've started lately is I'll kind of stack my neurocognitive progressions with physical. So say I can do a knee extension, 50 pounds, sets of three sets of 10, whatever. Before I go up to 55 pounds, I'll make them do a session where now they have to do a dual task with me. So every rep you have to do addition or right. I use PowerPoint slides that fly. And one sporting team actually, they would have a, like a, a soccer game playing. They would pause it and they would go, where's that player going to go next? And so that would force their attention on the sport and they got to keep executing the same amount of max force. You know, they're going, going. And it's best if you can measure their performance in some way. And so if you have a dynamometer or some way to get an output of their performance, that's good. But if you don't have it, at least challenging them is better and looking for any sort of deformity or any sort of error. And then when they can do that and they can do the same performance, then I'll progress them physically. I'll take the cognitive away and then I'll add it back. And I kind of right. see. I see. So you're making sure that you're, you're kind of bringing them up together and then you know that cognitively they're doing fine. Then you can kind of take it away, work on the physical a bit and then kind of retest and make sure right. you're keeping up with the cognition. Yeah. Cause I don't want them to just do six months of straight think like progressing physically at the expense of cognition. I want to keep it the whole way up. And again, use your head like a clinician, you know, every exercise, you don't have to do it for everything, but if it's an opportunity, like if they're just warming up or doing range of motion exercise stuff that they shouldn't really be focused on it, then definitely do it. And then I, you think of it as a progression after that. Yeah. And then that's where I guess like with, I mean, actually one of the things that kind of is a pet peeve of mine on, on, on social media, there's you know a lot of yeah. social media, yeah. but like luck. a lot of people kind of like think that unstable surface training or perturbation training is kind of silly, but that's why we do that type of training is to enhance neuromuscular control. Like one of the big knocks on it is like, well, you know, it decreases power. Like you don't have as much power when you do that type of training, but that's not why you're doing that. It's type not the of system training. you're training. Yeah. 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 You're developing a different system when you're doing that type of training. So, so then my question was, can we measure the brain connectivity yeah. to assist, uh, assess injury risk during the season? Like if we measure athletes prior to the season, can we predict which ones are high risk and low risk? So we, we were really fortunate. Um, a group I worked with that was at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. They're now at Emory in, in Georgia. And they had this big concussion study going on in youth soccer and football where they were getting scans before the season, middle of the season, end of the season. They're trying to look at subtle brain changes with concussion. And the thought was if you had baseline data on everyone, because a big thing with neuroimaging, so everyone knows concussion doesn't really do anything structurally to the brain, has to do with the brain's metabolism. And you could use like PET imaging and look at um, glucose uptake and different measures. And there's some interesting newer data with more advanced imaging that can detect concussion, but really there's no standard clinical tool imaging, right, to detect it. But the thought was if we could use some of these more advanced imaging techniques, get baseline data, maybe we could see something that's going on. And I somewhat interested in it, but I was like, well, you had some non-contact ACL injuries happen. Can I look at their brains before the injury? And what we found was we didn't have any motor task data because that's not what they were interested in, but they had that resting connectivity scan. Like how is my brain connected at rest? And what we found was that normally your sensory cortex and your cerebellum have like a, a 0.3 to 0.5 correlation at rest, which means they're functionally connected somewhat. 
And we actually find that people who are highly trained, who have a lot of um, sport experience more elite, they tend to be a little bit higher and people that are less trained a little bit lower, but usually you have some connections. And what this pathway does, it basically does sensory corrections. So you sit, what's really interesting about your cortex and really what distinguishes it as special is what it's fundamentally engaged in. So there was um, legendary neuroscientist, uh, Vernon Mountcastle. He has this discovery, um, I think it's in the 70s or 80s, I'm not 100% sure, but there was um, all these neuroanatomists trying to study what makes each cortex, each area of the cortex slightly different. You know, they would look at this really fine glial cells or the dendritic spines or whatever, look at all these different anatomy. And he had this option, he's like, whoa, every cortex neuron is like 99% the same. Hmm. And he said, this is interesting. And then he's like, well, what makes them different? He's like, well, it's just what they're connected to or what they output to is really what makes them different. So your visual cortex is only slightly different because it's processing optical information, right? And then he was like, he, so he started on this path. He's like, well, what are these neurons doing if they're all so similar? And what he really found is that the the cortex is organized in these cortical columns, which are these six layered processing units. So we usually think of the fundamental building block of the nerve system as the neuron, but in the cortex, it's really the, each processing unit are these columns, which are bundles of neurons. And you have six layers with different connections to different regions, and they engage in different processing. Now, what these do, what it looks like they do is they engage in prediction. So you're always trying to predict auditory stimuli, sensory stimuli, motor stimuli, this is really validated with, um, if you're bored one day, you can read about the efferent copy hypothesis, which is pretty fascinating. Basically your motor cortex this is really crazy. So for a long time, neuroscience, we thought like there's all this feedback, like well over half of your neural connections are like feedback connections. They're like, why do we need all this feedback stuff? Well, even after you execute a motor command, your motor cortex sends an impulse to the sensory cortex, which is basically a copy of what it sent down. And it said, hey, is the afferent feedback you have coming in, does it match what I sit down, Jeez. right? And it's because you're trying to predict constantly what's going to yeah. happen. And it's only when you make a slight prediction error that you direct your attention to it. Like if you go to pick up your water and it's someone fill it up without you knowing it, you're like, whoa, whoa, that's way heavier. So it directs your attention to it because you predict it to be one way based on your memory and your experiences and it was different. And um so sensory cortex is constantly engaged in this prediction. And what we think this pathway to the cerebellum does that we found to be disrupted in our ACL patients are the ones that went on to ACL, they had negative or no correlation in this sensory cerebellar pathway. And we think it does, it tries to correct for sensory prediction errors. And so like, for instance, if you go to land from a jump and your foot is a couple centimeters more lateral than you planned it to be, well, your cerebellum has to go, well, we need to fire the glutes way more because we are more lateral. The, the valgus moment is higher. I need to counteract that. And if you predicted that, you'll be fine. But if you failed to predict it, you have another catch. So one, your first catch is the spinal cord. It could sense the, the stretch on the, on the ligaments and induce a rapid correction. It's the same thing like if you smash patella tendon, you know, the quad contracts to protect it. Same idea. So if, the, if it's fast, the spinal cord could do that. But you also have another layer of corrections. You have this transcortical reflex, which is highly cerebellar regulated, which will try to also correct for it. And if both of those fail and you're just too late, a lot of it is just time. You need you don't have enough milliseconds all the time to correct for them. Yeah, that's then, that that that's really cool. So I'll, I'll try to explain this. Yeah, I know that's a lot. Is that I guess if we're walking down the sidewalk, right? 
and we're talking to somebody and suddenly there's like a dip or something in in the road and the ground isn't where we think it's going to be it's a little bit further we automatically correct for that right because what you're saying is our brain's predicting where when our foot's going to hit the ground and suddenly that doesn't happen and so there's a reflexive automatic movement to compensate for that so that we don't fall like we don't think about the fact that we have to move a certain way to catch ourselves in that situation it's just automatic is that correct exactly. all right so then for the listeners here that automatic sensory correction is dependent upon the sensory cortex and the cerebellum communicating with one another and we can measure how well they communicate with one another in terms of correlation or connectivity. Normally, the sensory cortex and the cerebellum have a 0.3 to 0.5 correlation, where one would be a perfect correlation or a perfect communication. Okay. So then what Dustin found was when he looked at the data, the athletes who suffered the non-contact ACL injuries had a negative or no correlation between their sensory cortex and their cerebellum. And so because of that, these athletes are not good at making those automatic sensory corrections in their movement, and therefore they are at higher risk of injury. So then a question that I get asked a lot about is uh, professional athletes. So like what, what's different about professional athletes compared to regular people? And I would say like, with professional athletes, their ability to compensate is just like off the charts. Like they always compensate really well. So I could get them to do a really challenging balancing exercise, say standing on uh, some sort of balance board or, or a BOSU ball upside down with the soft side up, which is very challenging with like a 35 pound dumbbell on the other hand, ask them to do a single leg squat. Most people will fall all over the place. A professional athlete generally will be kind of all over the place, but they won't fall. They'll be able to find their balance point and do like 12 reps without falling. And it's really extraordinary. Would that be because they're better at predicting sensory errors and their body just compensates quicker that way? I don't know if we have uh, data that I've seen that would say that for sure, but I think that's definitely part of it. And so it's two things, I think, for the professional athlete. One, they have like more muscle capability, right? So if you're just like way stronger, if you think of um, like a good way to contextualize motor control is like the dynamic systems framework, right? You have this task I'm trying to do. I have some constraints on it. You have the capability of yourself. And so some of that capability of the person is their muscle strengths that gives them like more degrees of freedom. So they can have more of like flexibility potentially. So they generate a lot more torque probably from their glutes or whatever to hold them up. But I also think there is definitely something to like people that are really good athletes that I don't think we've quite figured out exactly what it is. Their um, movement is just different and it doesn't matter what sport you can just tell right. especially like a high level, like playing in the best league or tour in the world for that sport. And you see them and you're watching them with other say really good athletes as well. You're like, that one's different that athlete moves a little bit different, whatever the sport is, their movement is just like more pristine. Obviously they have more practice, but they are just, there's something different about them. And, you know, there's another piece to it that there's been a little more work on 
so the, uh, I don't think I don't know if there's been work on sensory prediction elite athletes there might have been but I, I mean I would say conceptually it's definitely playing a role they're somehow better at dealing with it but there's also a piece that um have you ever heard or read about like mirror neurons or like motor imagery kind of stuff no. so mirror neurons basically neurons activate if you see movement and so this is one way way you can like imitate movement so the, the story for this is, I think it was, a, oh, I forget her name. Dang it, it's such a cool story. Uh, um, it only takes another second. I know I get sidetracked a little bit, but this is just- Oh no, cool. I love it, yeah. So this young lady's a postdoc in a lab, I think at John Hopkins. Man, I can't believe she, she's kind of famous for this, but I feel bad forgetting her name. But um, anyway, so she, she's doing this lab in a primate lab and she has the monkeys all ready to go. She's got the electrodes in there and uh, in the motor cortex. <laughs> And she, it's like a reaching study, right? And they reach for a banana or something. And then, uh, and so she, something's wrong with the experience. She goes and she picks up this banana and the motor cortex oscilloscope fires. And she looks at the monkey. She goes, did you just move, right? Motor cortex is supposed to fire if you're not moving. And she reached for it again and it fired. And she's like, holy crap, the motor cortex area that lets you reach activated when it saw me reach. Wow. And it kind of like shook up the whole neuroscience. We're like, we didn't think that was possible. We didn't think that was supposed to happen. Yeah. And this was only this, I think this is the 80s, I think. Um, so it wasn't like super long time ago. And this like fundamental groundbreaking shift in how we understand the system suddenly you know, happened, you know, overnight. And uh, and this has been reproduced over and over. And basically a percentage of the neurons that activate when you go to move will activate if you visualize movement, see movement, imagine movement. There's some interesting stuff with mirror neurons that it also plays a role in like society, like the ability to have empathy and take other people's perspective is hinged on this system. Mm. You have someone mimic you in therapy and they follow your movements, depending on this system. There's been some cool stuff with elite athletes and novice athletes who look at the mirror neuron system and it is different. So their ability to see movement and recognize what it is and interpret it is so it has some unique efficiencies in it and unique differences. So I kind of wonder with your elite athletes, like, if he just saw that and then he could just do it because right. his mirror neuron system is somehow better. Like when I was doing my PhD at Ohio state, the captain of the lacrosse team. Uh, so he's a phenomenal athlete. Um, I remember we go snowboarding once and, and he, he was doing like a thing in our lab and I had gone for years, but my first year was brutal. Like you fall all the time. It's painful. I mean, it was terrible. Um, Cause I started going when I was in college and then he's never gone before. He doesn't fall the whole day. And he just like, I'm like, how are you doing this? And he goes, I don't really know. If I just see someone do it, I can just do it. But I'm like, you're not seeing my toes and my heels, yeah. like the subtle movements that go into controlling yourself on skis or snow so you don't fall. Pat, like, you don't see that, but how? Like, I just, and I, that stuck with me. And then the, all these mirror neuron studies have been come out over the last few years. So there's something there in these elite athletes too. And, and well, it's almost even like they don't even need to see it even. Like, you can just tell them to go do something. And their brain just figures out how to do it. Cause some of the things I can't even demonstrate. I'm like, Hey, can you do this? And like, Oh, I will try. I'm like, Oh, wow, you could. <laughs> yeah. So it's quite. It's, a uh, and we, and some of it is trainable probably, but there is definitely, there's been some studies on like the genetic inheritance of coordination and proprioception. Mm -hmm. And the, like there was just a, the Nobel prize was in medicine was just given for um, PIEZO one and two McKenna receptors, which, are somewhat genetically regulated. So you have this idea that there's definitely going to be an inheritance component to be some of these abilities. Um, I don't know if we know the ceiling on training, like if someone has a genetic capacity for it, like 
it kind of feels that way. I think if you work with enough people, you kind of have a sense that, you know, yeah. not everyone could be Michael Jordan. Yeah, there's a, and I was actually, I was going to ask you that question earlier too, when we're talking about like predicting injury risk is like some people are just more coordinated and more athletic than others. Can you look at their brain and predict athleticism? So I don't know if, if that's been done. There has been people who study coordination development disorder. So if you flip it, we go the opposite way. Um, the people, so kids who are not like diagnosed with anything, now they don't have any official pathology, but there's like the clumsy kid is what this is classically called. So the person with a lot of, um, it's just called CDC coordination development disorder. And uh, the occupational therapists tend to study it. And you see it a lot in pediatrics and stuff like that. And what actually they see is they see a very similar activation pattern that we see post-injury, especially this lingual gyrus and this cross-modal, where they just, for whatever reason, haven't developed the proprioceptive, or they might not even have the proprioceptive acuity for whatever reason. Like there is, like when people look at, I think people sometimes forget in science, there's always an error bar on every measure. And so you look at the mechanoreceptors in the ACL, like how many um, Pacinian corpuscles and Racinian phrenian nerve endings do you have in there? which will translate into the sensitivity you have of your nervous system and what's going on with the tension of the ACL. And so you'll have three to 10% of the fibers in the ACL will be mechanoreceptors where you're like, well, that's a pretty big range of possibility. And that's to do with all the variability of humans. So I think that's one thing we kind of forget in science that you're going to have this range on everything we care about that's going to be somewhat variable. Yeah, and then the, the people who have more mechanoreceptors are going to have more sensory information going in probably move a little bit better because of that extra in theory yeah and it's probably systemic like you probably just have more for whatever reasons right. you know right and then i wonder though if you could if you yeah how much training could you do or how much could you heighten the sensory input into the nervous system that you're getting from your say five percent could you make that information louder versus somebody who has eight percent and doesn't train that sensory Input. Yeah, you can make it more efficient would be the idea. Yeah. Or you make it, um, you could, I mean, you can definitely, there's some interesting idea that you could definitely like train some of at least the motor responses. So you could have it take less afferent traffic to produce the same motor response. I mean, that is possible. How, how, do, you, how do you do that? So there's some interesting um, studies going on where you try to manipulate the level of afferent traffic into the system. So there's a Troy Blackburn at UNC Chapel Hill. He's just finished a series of these really cool studies post-injury where he uses vibration. And what's interesting about your mechanoreceptors is they're sensitive to stretch as you would expect, but vibration actually induces subtle shifts and just very small stretch stretches essentially because the, the tissue moves and that creates this afferent feedback response, like a low level sort of stretch response. And he's used it like whole body vibration and vibration on the knee and patella tendon to really upweight the remaining afferent traffic you have and help increase spinal cord excitability and general excitability of the muscle without doing any other shift. And so there's a cool body of literature on the, these ideas are called, they're called like disinhibitory modalities. And they're mostly trying to increase afferent traffic. And after you increase the traffic, you have this window where you're probably, those motor neurons are a little more excitable. And then if you train in that window, and it can, some studies show like if you do um, cryotherapy over an injured joint, you actually increase afferent traffic to that joint because you've upped afferent traffic from the ice, from the, from the thermal receptors. 
you actually overcome some quad inhibition. It's got to be over the joint, though, not over the muscle. Interesting. Interesting. And then you have this window from vibration of these other therapies, like uh, E-stem's another one. Like a lot of people like don't want to use any modalities, but you use them with exercise if someone has a lot of muscle inhibition. And then that can help increase the motor responses, even though you don't have any more afferents, you're basically rate coding the remaining ones. So the TENS machine is kind of putting more sensory information into the nervous system and reducing the, or I guess, increasing the excitability. Yeah. Oh, very cool. And so like, if you picture, like we talked about the very beginning about like premotor neuron, it's lost afferent stuff. Well, if I can blast you with afferent right. traffic, even though it's not ideal, yeah. Um, it's probably better than making you, you'll have more excitatory inputs. It's a little bit easier to generate a motor contraction, maybe less input from attention. Well, Dustin, I've kept you here longer than I said I was going to. So this I'm, is great. I'm going to let you go here, but I want to have you on again. Cause I mean, yeah, your stuff is just so fascinating for the people that would like to maybe follow updates that you give. Are you on social media at all? Yeah, I have a, a Twitter. I don't post to it a lot. So it's just uh, at Dusty underscore grooms, or if you just Google Dustin Grooms, Ohio University, I do respond to emails. So if any clinician emails me and they want anything I can help them with, I have a, a zip file. I send up our key articles, also a zip file, a bunch of PowerPoints that are pre-timed to one second that have different cognitive challenges on them. You can experiment and basically you just hit play and they go and every rep of the exercise you could have to do the cognitive challenge. Um, the other thing we didn't talk about a lot is we use a lot of smartphone VR to try to induce these contextual perturbations in rehab. We're working on an app that'll be free for clinicians that implements a lot of stuff we've done in the lab, but that's taken a lot longer than I originally thought, um, as with everything in science, I guess. But uh, I, do, I do send out a guide that's like a quick start guide to use YouTube VR or get ideas um, to help you try to implement some of these things in your therapeutic practice. So. Um, yeah, happy to respond or help any way I can. Because if this, cool. doesn't get, this stuff doesn't reach clinicians, then I've wasted my whole life. So yeah, um, no, I, I want to get it out there to as many people as possible. And I'll, I'll put the link to all of what you just talked about. Uh, yeah. in the I'll send it to you. As well. Okay, awesome. All right, Dustin, thank you so much cool. for coming on. And, and let's do this again. Let's do this again in a few months. Sounds I, good. I absolutely enjoy this. Thanks, Thomas. Thank you. Bye-bye. See you.